Incoming transmission. Welcome. Welcome. Welcome to True Spies. Week by week, mission by mission, you'll hear the true stories behind the world's greatest espionage operations. You'll meet the people who navigate this secret world. What do they know? What are their skills? And what would you do in their position? This is True Spies. Basically, there is no way back. If we do this move, if we do that, we engage Americans from that moment, it's over. So we are traitors. We are enemy of the state. It's over. It's done. This is True Spies. Episode 39, The Money Spy. Money. Who's got it? How do they spend it? What will they do to keep it? This week's True Spy has the answers. For over a decade, he worked inside the corrupt, clandestine world of Russian finance, working within a vast, state-sponsored money laundering operation. When he wanted out, he learned that the cost of disloyalty was very high indeed. It's a story that ends over 5,000 miles away from Moscow, in Portland. That's Portland, Oregon, the gateway to the Pacific Northwest. Really nice city, nice people, great culture, lots of uh, craft beer, really nice restaurants. And it's in one of Portland's pleasant little cafes that we find Janosch Neumann and his wife, Victoria. They're here for an important meeting. So they called the meeting. And uh, we came to the meeting. Sunny day, Portland, Oregon. Everyone dressed casual, except these two guys who came in the business suits. Across their table, a man and a woman, dressed in business suits, take their seats. The woman, Christine, places her purse on the table. She's preparing for a difficult conversation. As the local supervisor for the FBI's Portland branch, she's used to that. The two parties greet each other. Janusz looks expectantly at Christine. He's noticed that her hand stays on her purse. So basically, it was pretty obvious that she's holding the gun towards me inside the purse. And that was kind of indication of something is wrong. Janusz and Victoria look at each other and then back to the FBI agents. Something is very definitely wrong. A quick visual sweep of the area confirms that this is not a private meeting. We almost immediately identify a few surveillance guys who've been sitting across the street on the open deck towards us because we saw them and passed. There's a reason for the extra firepower. The Neumanns are about to receive some truly terrible news. The FBI aren't sure how they'll react. So, supervisor and this case agent told us that our relationship are over. Since 2008, Janosch and Victoria Neumann had been feeding information about state-sponsored money laundering to the US government. Now, they were being cut loose. No documents, no money, no future. How did it come to this? Their story starts in Moscow. Hi everyone, my name is Janosch Neumann. Before we go on, no, that's not his real name. He was born Alexei Artamonov, 
His reasons for changing it will become all too clear. For the purposes of this podcast, we'll stick with Janosch. I'm a former officer, FSB officer from Russian counterintelligence. I've been in service since 1996 up to 2008. From 2008 up to 2014, I've been helping U.S. intelligence government agencies to fight with international money laundering organizations and syndicates and organized crime groups. Janusz was born in Moscow at the peak of the Cold War. He came of age during the 1990s, in the years following the collapse of the USSR. The economic and political devastation which followed provided fertile ground for corruption at every level of society. It was during this turbulent period that Janosch first joined the FSB, Russia's internal security and counterintelligence service. The country was on the edge of the civil war. It was absolute mess. The country was ran by Yeltsin and his, uh, I can't call it administration, it was more as a gang affiliated with the oligarchs. Russian intelligence was struggling to keep a lid on the wave of chaos that had engulfed the country. They needed to bolster their ranks. They also needed recruits who would not be easily swayed by the opportunity to make a quick ruble or the promise of a new life in the West. A new generation of officers whose patriotic loyalty to the state would be deeply ingrained. Spies like that are hard to come by how do you create the perfect operatives in sufficient numbers? After the collapse of the Soviet Union, the system was changed and they started to recruit younger kids to the FSB Academy. There's your answer. Get them young. Too young to be disillusioned with the ideals of the Russian state. The FSB Academy is the Russian equivalent of Quantico for the FBI or the secretive farm where CIA officers cut their teeth. Essentially, it's higher education with a very specific focus on espionage. But there's one key difference. FBI agents and CIA officers generally come to the profession in their early 20s, if not much later. When Janosch entered the academy, he was just 17 years old. You were just after the school. You've been not spoiled with adult life, right? So you're not going to the college or university. You don't hang with you most of the time with your friends. You've just directly been taken from the school. So it's a different environment, a different philosophy, different mindset. Like many recruits, Janosch came for a household with strong ties to what he calls the system. The confluence of the military, the intelligence community, and the civil service that forms the backbone of the state. His service wasn't exactly a choice. He was under considerable pressure from his family to choose a respectable path. So in my case, it was not my decision, it was more as a family decision. And about 99% of the people who've been around me inside the academy, my classmates, they all came from the system. The system was supplying itself. After graduating, Janosch was assigned to a high-profile counterintelligence unit, FSB Unit 1. In Unit 1, investigators root out foreign spies working undercover in Russia's institutions they build legal cases against those who commit espionage. This can involve a lot of paperwork, following the money, verifying documents, that kind of thing. But it's not just a desk job. They also have to gather information from first-person sources. They have to run agents. I think it's one of the most complicated jobs in a counterintelligence service, because you not only 
trained to be just as just an investigator guy who's just working on some legal aspects. But you have to learn all the operative tradecraft as well. And not only for your guys, but how the other guys are doing this job as well. Uh, basically our counterparts. So is a, a MI6, Mossad, CIA, and so on. Because you are investigating them. Remember, Yanush joined the FSB at a time when Russia was particularly vulnerable to foreign incursions. Fires were springing up everywhere. To put them out, Yanosh and his colleagues needed to get inside the heads of the arsonists. So every time you're learning, and learning not only from your own experience, like from your guys' experience, but from, from your counterparts as well. So you're learning all the methods, techniques, the way uh, foreign agencies are recruiting sources on the Russian soil, the way they are communicating, the way they are establishing their network of sources on the ground, the way they've been even deployed to Russia, how they've been the country itself, how they've been able to settle themselves or even get a kind of identities. So all of that you have to learn. After several years with Unit 1, Yanush was transferred to the FSB's Department of Economic Security. Money and its whereabouts was a pressing concern for Russian intelligence. After the end of communism, several less than legitimate characters had seen opportunity in the chaos. As I know from Russia itself, uh, been stolen close to the two trillion dollars. Then, of course, guys from somehow related or affiliated with the gas and oil industry, with minerals, with financial institutions like banks. Their goal was to make as much money as possible. In majority of the cases, not just to make it, just basically steal. And I was recruiting sources among Russian businessmen and foreign businessmen who've been working in the uh, line of finance and pressure metals, pressure stones. So I've been creating my own network of agents who've been working for me and supplying us with information. And that's only half the story. Banks, both in Russia and around the world, were also playing their part in laundering the ill-gotten cash. Fortunately, the FSB had eyes inside the banks. Great Olympics Bank, idea behind it, the FSB idea, was quite brilliant. To the casual observer, Credit Impex was a bank like any other, but here's what made it unique. In the 1990s, the FSB realized that it was fighting a losing battle against financial crime. Sure, they could arrest everybody they suspected of partaking, but that wouldn't be a lasting fix for the broken system. In Russia's criminal underworld, the next mastermind is always waiting in the wings. The FSB's solution was to infiltrate credit impacts. In doing so, the agency embedded itself into the country's culture of corruption. The bank became an avatar of the state. By the end of the 90s, Credit Impex, and by extension the FSB, were key players in the biggest money laundering operation in the country. Bank took over almost about 95, 97% of the money laundering market in Russia. The operation spanned decades. Think of it like a multi-billion dollar sting. Get involved, take it over, take everyone down, eventually. At some point, I received an offer to be transferred to Active Reserve and join, we can't say it's join the Credit Impacts Bank, but just be in touch to the Credit Impacts Bank as a deputy head of economic security. To be on Active Reserve means that you're no longer an active FSB officer. You're not going into the office every day. To all intents and purposes, you're working a civilian job 
but you're still sending information back to Russian intelligence. When Yanosh moved to active reserve, his new role as Credit Impex Deputy Head of Economic Security put him right at the heart of Russia's money laundering boom. He set to work monitoring the activities of the bank's clients and sending reports back to Russian intelligence. But it wasn't long before he realized that something was very, very wrong. Initial plan was just to start this as a sting operation. But listeners should understand that if you're swimming in a swamp, it's basically impossible to stay clean. After some time, when everyone realized how much money is rolling around this whole money laundering activity inside the country, everyone figured out that just besides doing something for your country, you could make some money for yourself as well. Janusz came to this realization a few months into his time at Credit Impex. He was asked to meet an old friend from the FSB. In fact, this was the senior officer who had made him the offer to join the bank operation in the first place. As it turned out, he wouldn't be attending the meeting empty-handed. He was to bring his former colleague a very generous gift. So in a bank, they gave me uh, like a small package, like the bag, right? And it ended up inside was about two bricks. One brick is $100,000 cash. Janosch met the FSB officer, a general, no less, at a swanky restaurant in downtown Moscow. I paid for his meal. We had a nice chat and I gave him a bag. And this is the guy who was receiving the lovely bags from now and on every few weeks. Remember, this was just the payoff for one man. The sheer quantity of cash that was changing hands between the bank and corrupt officials was astronomical. The FSB had started its infiltration of credit impacts with the goal of exposing those who threatened the social order of the new Russia. Now, it was clear that it had lost sight of that objective in the most egregious way. Yanush had been a loyal member of the Russian intelligence apparatus since his teens. The general's breezy acceptance of dirty money was a blow to his entire worldview. I remember how this person was teaching us how we should love our country, how we should sacrifice everything for our country, how we should protect our country. And that was the moment which changed everything, especially like in my understanding of what's going on. And lots of the people who initially been involved from only from the positive side, they've been behind this idea and uh, they knew that we're doing something right. They kind of flipped the side. Flip the coin. Put yourself in that restaurant opposite the general. What would be your next step? Would you get on side, join in with the culture of corruption inside the FSB? Or would you stick to those rigid ethics? Report him? Well, you could try. Well, here's the problem. First of all, guys on the level of deputy heads or heads of the directorates, they knew what's going on. I'm not sure directors, they knew what's going on not, but most likely, yes, they knew. Uh, guys from internal security services, they've been part of it uh, because they had to take care of the certain things internally inside the FSB as well. Okay, so the FSB aren't going to be much use. But they're not the only game in town, law enforcement-wise. The Russian state police have economic crime divisions too. Why not make an anonymous tip? Police, they were competitors for credit impacts and what FSB was doing economic security units, which are supposed to investigate corruption, money laundering, some illegal activities, tax fraud. They've been involved in this business way earlier than FSB. So when FSB got into this business, 
It was quite a surprise to figure out how many high-rank police generals and operatives and units and uh, so on been involved. Ah, uh, not the police then. Reluctantly, Janos stayed in his position at Credit Impex. He kept delivering those gifts, but that didn't mean he had to be happy about it. Well, I mean, at some point I was the guy who was ruining the party for them. So I was a, I was a person who was always complaining and uh, quite unhappy about what's going on, and especially on the level of uh, even why we're doing this. And his displeasure had not gone unnoticed. So it's like 11 p.m. in the evening. I just had a call from one of the bank owners, and the person asked me just, can you visit me? Can you just stop by in my house? A driver from Credit Impex picked Janosz up at home. In the back seat, Janosz wondered where this late-night conversation might lead. They approached the bank owner's house. It was pretty quick conversation, about like five, six minutes, and they made me an offer, and I had a choice. And I'm lucky I had the choice. Three choices, to be exact. None of them ideal. Один. One, be an officer. That's a very specific bit of FSB jargon. To put it bluntly, it means shooting yourself in the head, literally. Два. Two, someone else can do it for you. Three. Three, get the hell out of Russia. Naturally, Janosz took the third option. But that's a tricky part. I had a feeling that it's a trap. And by knowing how my former organization been working, it was pretty obvious that they already put flags on me uh, if I want to leave the country or cross the border or even travel from the inside. Like Janosz said, it was a short conversation. When I came back home after this meeting, driver drove me back and I spoke with my wife. It was really complicated, tough, emotional decision which we made together. I think I'm still alive just because of her, because she made this right decision over 10 years ago. Put yourself in Mrs. Neumann's shoes. How would you react? Your partner's just burst in the door past midnight and told you that your life in Moscow is over. If you stay, there's a good chance that you'll be killed or imprisoned. Would you cry, panic, or act? Suffice it to say, Victoria Neumann was not without her own resources. She was a part of the system. She has the same training as I am, but a bit more advanced because she's way smarter than I am. Together, the couple began to formulate a plan. We started to figure out how we can get out of my country. First step was to check, did they put a flag on me or not? Do I have any, are they trying to track me and what's going on? Yes, Janosz had been told he was allowed to leave. But in reality, this was unlikely. He knew too much. So I had one of my burner phones and I made a call to my friend. He was like more as a mentor and the guy was uh, still in active service and he was really hiring former kind of KGB and FSB guy. Janosz set a meeting with his old mentor. He explained the situation. Luckily, he'd found a sympathetic ear. He almost instantly called his friend, was kind of part of Water Patrol, and they checked what's going on in the system, and they found out that I, I had the flag on me. So it was almost was impossible to cross the border and be undetected. And it wasn't just Russia's international borders they needed to worry about. 
Janusz's contact confirmed that there were flags on his name across the country's rail networks, as well as internal flights. If he was caught, well, he might end up having to be an officer after all. Luckily, Victoria thought fast. She knew how to throw their pursuers off the scent. My wife, she already mentioned she's, she's a pretty smart person. And she booked and bought quite a few tickets, airplane tickets, all of the, at the same kind of time slot, plus minus like 30 minutes or 45 minutes, in all uh, major airports in Russia, in, in Moscow area, uh, which is Sheremetyevo, Sheremetyevo 2, Domodedovo, and uh, Vnukovo. So some flights been booked as domestic from Moscow to St. Petersburg. Some flights been booked as international flights. Now, if Russian intelligence were monitoring the Neumann spending, they wouldn't be able to pinpoint the airport from which they planned to make their escape. But it wasn't a zero-risk strategy. They still had to get to an airport. First, they needed to fall off the radar. That meant leaving home immediately. We spent some time in our place. And then basically we just had like one suitcase per person. My friend who was an FSB during this time, another guy, he was an operative. He found a place for us where to stay. It was a hotel in Moscow. He kind of, he knew the operative who was an FSB guy who was handling the hotel. Janusz's FSB contact smuggled him and Victoria into a hotel room without officially checking in. They had disposed of most of their traceable electronics all apart from one very important cell phone. Which had all the FSB business associates, let's put this, bank business associates information was in it. I just kind of took the battery off and the SIM card and uh, shut it down completely. Not to mention some other valuable and potentially incriminating data from the murky world of credit impex. Of course, I took some of my paperwork, which I kind of, you know, you're meeting with the people, you're meeting with the uh, clients, you're discussing what they want to do, how much they want to send, where, bank information, some accounts information from all around the Europe and globe. Yeah, kind of, I took these files with me and uh, yeah, we left. We left everything behind. On the day of their departure, the Neumann's friend inside the FSB escorted them to the airport. He was driving next to us in case of road, police want to stop us. So his job was just basically to play a rabbit. If someone want to stop, he's just going to speed up immediately and get attention on him for speeding or some kind of reckless driving. They weren't stopped. After a tense drive, they arrived in the airport in one piece. We arrive less than an hour before the departure. Their late arrival wasn't down to poor planning. The less time they spent under the glare of the airport's CCTV, the better. They moved quickly, heads down, towards departures. The passport control kiosk loomed up ahead. This is where they would find out whether they had outmaneuvered the Russian state or fallen into its clutches. Every day in America, 60 million packages are delivered. But we don't always know what's inside. He bent down to pick the package up. That's when the device detonated. Danger is everywhere, and no one is safe in Austin, Texas, as law enforcement hunts a serial bomber for 19 days. From Sony Music Entertainment, Campside Media, and Pegalo Pictures, this is Witnessed. 19 days. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts to binge all episodes or listen weekly wherever you get your podcasts. So my wife, she went first. 
and this booth where you can see the Border Patrol person sitting. She went smooth, no questions at all. She just passed it, all fine. In my case, they called me, I went there. She checked my passport, she looked at the system, and she was looking at me several times, just going back and forward. Janos stared ahead at the passport officer. What was the holdup? Had he been flagged? Would he be dragged away by armed security? He looked across to the other side of the barrier. Victoria was standing there, watching, already free. Would he ever see her again? And then she just, instead of just let me go and put a stamp, she just called her supervisor. You're in an airport. Security is naturally very tight. When passport control calls their supervisor, it's rarely good news. All Janos could do was watch as the supervisor entered the booth. He checked something in the system, and then he looked at me again, just took the passport from the booth and said, are you an exchange student? This was unexpected. Janos had been an exchange student long ago. Before he joined the FSB Academy, he'd spent time in the US and the UK. And I figured out that only one person knew that I was really exchange student right before I joined the academy. It was the guy who actually helped me with crossing the border. Suppressing his panic, Janos began to figure out what was happening. To get him out of the country, his friend in the FSB needed an innocent reason for a travel flag next to his name. The fact that he spent time in enemy territory as an exchange student would qualify. But the years of service Janos had given the Russian state since his time abroad had, surely, made his loyalties clear. So, our nameless FSB contact had let the passport control supervisor know to expect the flag and allow Janos to carry on unimpeded. And I said, yes, I am an exchange student. So he gave me my passport and they let me go. Panic over. After the ordeal at passport control, Janos and Victoria safely boarded a plane from Moscow to Frankfurt, Germany. Some refreshment was in order. All they had on board was cognac. I said, yeah, just bring the bottle. Janusz was sober when he landed in Frankfurt. The unimaginable stress of the situation had completely negated the effects of the alcohol. This was probably a good thing. He had a connecting flight to catch. Next stop? The Dominican Republic, straight. The Dominican Republic, an island nation in the Caribbean. There are worse places to end up. But beyond the good weather, Janos and Victoria had practical reasons for their choice of destination. Back then, in 2008, uh, not that many Russians on the ground. They had a small, really small Russian-speaking community population, but not how it is right now. It was not really highly popular touristic destination for Russians as well, or people from former Soviet Union. And actually, there is no Russian embassy in it. Back in 2008, it was uh, just a consulate. And I guess the consul was a local Dominican lady. So a very limited Russian presence. That's one reason. The other is that you don't need a visa to travel from Russia to the Dominican Republic. Remember, we're avoiding a paper trail at all costs. Thanks to my friend who helped us to cross the border, it was no stamp in our passports that we ever left Russia. So basically, I left the country without a stamp in it. And that, for quite some time, it was an indication that I never left the country. But in their haste to leave Russia, the Neumanns had given little thought to what they'd actually do when they reached the Caribbean. So, we spent in Dominican Republic, it was a month, I guess, almost a month, 
Uh, we've been trying to figure out what to do and how to do with the things and collecting some information. We've been able to find a really safe place. It's in the north part of the Dominican Republic. It's great weather, it's not that humid. And we basically integrated into the local surfers and the kite surfers community. I was not shaving, so I had like a beard. I was tanned and drinking some beer with local guys and uh, just hanging. But this idyllic lifestyle wouldn't last long. Using a burner phone, Janos had managed to stay in contact with some of his friends inside Russia. They were happy that he and Victoria had escaped, but they didn't shy away from the dangerous reality of his situation. They reminded the runaways that the Russian state did not like being outsmarted, and they were on the hunt. Time to weigh up your options. We had this discussion, what's next? Can we stay in the Dominican Republic, safe or not? Uh, can we get new passports? And how we can get them, how we can leave the country? Being honest, it's, it's, it's not really complicated task to get new documents in the Dominican Republic. It's all doable, it's all about money. But money was not an unlimited resource. The Neumanns needed a sponsor, someone to watch their backs, someone to pay them for what they knew. But who would do that? If you've listened to True Spies before, you probably already know. Again, it was another tough conversation. And this conversation was, we knew it's basically there is no way back. If we do this move, if, if we do that, we engage Americans uh, from that moment, it's over. So we are traitors, we are enemy of the state, and uh, for us it's over, it's done. Remember, Janos and Victoria had grown up in the system. Patriotism was practically in their blood. The decision to betray their motherland was not an easy one. But to contact the Americans, they would have to use their skills against the state that trained them. I know how to catch American spies. This helped us a lot to get in touch with them, because if you know how to find them, that's not really complicated, how to connect with Americans. The CIA, the USA's foreign intelligence agency, is necessarily low-key. But if you were desperate to get in touch, you might want to contact your local US embassy. For the Neumanns, that was in Santa Domingo the capital of the Dominican Republic. They had dressed for the occasion. So we, we dressed as average tourists. Uh, I had a, like a fishing hat with like coins on it, and I had the sunglasses for the camera, shorts, flip-flops, and my wife was dressed as a tourist as well. When it comes to disguise, sometimes less is more. So yeah, we, we went to Santo Domingo. There is US embassy. We walked a few times around just to checking the uh, what's going on. U.S. Embassy looks like a fortress, so we got a huge wall around it and a long line of people standing next to it. Janusz and Victoria joined the long line of visitors to the U.S. Embassy. After an hour of patient queuing, they were met by a security guard. And my wife, she, uh, she speaks Spanish. She explained to him that we need to talk with someone from our security from the embassy. At first, the guard was unwilling to fetch a high-ranking American official to speak to mere tourists. After some cajoling from Victoria and a sprinkling of intimidation from Janos, they eventually relented. So after all, she decided to bring someone from the embassy. So it was a person, lady, uh, she went outside and she said, you guys want to talk? I said, yes, we, we want to talk and we, but we don't want to do it outside. The woman from the embassy, 
a CIA operative, realized that despite the flip-flops and sunglasses, these people were deadly serious. So we went inside and she asked me what, what's up to and you have to put like all your belongings and your camera or backpack or something on like on a special trail. So anyways, I just opened my backpack and my credential was inside it on the bottom. When she saw Janusz's FSB credentials, she immediately cleared the room. After a brief conversation, she arranged to meet them at a nearby coffee shop a few hours later. Janusz laid their cards on the table. I basically explained to her who I am and what I am and what I have. Uh, and we basically need help. We need from you guys uh, documents from the third country, some kind of money supply, and I will help you guys to bust the international money laundering ring, which was operating in Europe and the United States and UK. But the CIA wouldn't just take his word for it. They needed proof. Fortunately, Janusz was ready. I just put on the table one piece of paper with a few names, bank names, Western banks' names, and a few account numbers. And I just asked them just to check, which they did. And after that, we started to talk. They figure out what the hell is going on. The names and account numbers were enough to convince the CIA that Janusz and Victoria were worth taking a chance on. A deal was struck. In this line of work, there is no such thing as a signed contract. You just agreed on something verbally and then you shake the hands, deal is done, that's it. No one's gonna break. In the years to come, the Neumanns would come to regret the informal nature of their arrangement with American intelligence. But hindsight is 2020. After a month in their tropical limbo, constantly looking over their shoulders, things were finally moving forward. In return for their information, the CIA had offered Janos and Victoria the opportunity to relocate. First, they needed to get to Puerto Rico, a protected US territory. From there, they would be assigned a new place to live. They were instructed to make their way to the town of La Romana in the south of the Dominican Republic. From there, they would take a boat to San Juan, the capital of Puerto Rico. The CIA encouraged them to leave a muddy trail of unused hotel rooms, internet cafe logins and receipts to throw off anybody who might be tracking them on behalf of the Russian government. Overall, the journey took three weeks and covered 700 miles. Spies very rarely travel in straight lines. Eventually, they arrived in La Romana. In the small hours of a cool morning, they boarded a catamaran bound for San Juan, the Puerto Rican capital. So, we've got on the catamaran. Keep in mind, it, uh, it was no idea just to go directly. To get from point A to point B, you have to go for point C, D, E, and so on, just, just to make the loop or make it more complicated, more interesting. So anyways, we spent about four and a half, five hours on this catamaran. It was insane. You actually can feel like a levitation. If you're going to try to lean on a deck due to the waves, you, you're never touching the deck. You're just always on, in the air because it's going up and down all the time. And it was, it was disaster. Mercifully, the catamaran eventually slowed to a stop. A US Coast Guard boat approached the craft. Janusz and Victoria were transferred across to be met by a host of operatives from the US intelligence community. Several hours later, 
they were brought to shore in Puerto Rico. On dry land, the CIA gave the Neumanns an unexpected briefing. We put some blue jackets with the logo on, on us, same as everyone else who was on the boat, but not part of the uh, crew. We uh, left the boat and the agency guys uh, came to us and said like, okay, we have a bit, how how find a polite way, how they said that. We had some difficulties with our counterparts from the bureau and plans had changed. Essentially, the FBI had muscled in on the operation. They demanded access to the information that Yanis was offering. The CIA officers went on. So now, because of your level of expertise and the level of your knowledge and the way the work you've been doing, they kind of, they want to talk and they want to just, they want to fly with you guys. And they ask us to leave. They were taken to a nearby airport and boarded a private Gulfstream jet, accompanied by two FBI agents. They could almost relax, but not quite. They still didn't know exactly where the jet was heading. On a plane, I just asked them guys where we're going. And the guy was near me, like next to me, said that we can't say, it's just, it's a classified. But their destination wouldn't stay secret for long. One of the pilots, he heard what I said, but he didn't hear what the FBI guy said. So he just clicked the button and they got a flat screen with the whole travel map. And that's how we figure out we're going to the United States. On July the 17th, 2008, the Neumann's jet hit the tarmac in Richmond, Virginia. The days and weeks that followed were filled with interviews with various US intelligence agencies, all vying for Yanush's unique insights into the closed-off world of Russian finance. And they want to check and figure out, are we bullshit or not? Are we saying some saying truth or not? They want to uh, kind of bring us through the test. Sometimes it was pretty obvious that guys been coming and saying, OK, uh, here's we have a hypothetical case with the hypothetical banks and hypothetical people been involved in this process. Could you please explain to us what do you think about that? And I've been saying what I think and how it works. But what I can say that uh, more and more people have been coming. And later on, we figure out that it was a, a huge revelation for uh, FBI, for Treasury Department, for other guys, British officials, that uh, how big the whole operation is. I'm not talking about just the Great Olympics Bank. I just, I'm talking about in general, like how large and how complicated the um, this money laundering and the money legalization kind of process, well, let's say, like the this the underworld related to Russia, Russian government, Russian officials. They knew it's big, they knew it's complicated, but uh, they had no idea that it's that big and that complicated. So for them, it was like eyes opening. On the surface, things were going well. Yanush was providing incredibly valuable intel to the USA. But behind the scenes, things were more complex. The internal politics of the intelligence community were coming into play. The FBI, CIA, and other agencies had been vying for the chance to run the Neumann's operation on a more permanent basis. None of this matters to Janusz and Victoria. They just wanted the securities that they had been promised in Santa Domingo. So ultimate goal was just to get the new identities, get a new life and just have a normal, quiet life. In that particular power struggle, the FBI came out on top. Later that year, the Neumanns were relocated to Portland, Oregon. They changed their names, 
and started new lives as financial consultants. And we are consultants who are helping some American businessmen who has some business interests in uh, Eastern Europe. And that's why we're in Portland, Oregon. So, and the question is, what are you doing for consulting? Basically consulting, which is helping guys to some finance and understand how the Eastern European market is working. Their real job was to analyze financial activity between the USA and Russia, rooting out money launderers on both sides of the Atlantic. The main problem was like, look, Americans can see every transaction in the world. They control the financial system, but they don't know the origin of the money. With his insider knowledge, Janusz could help the FBI to discern which transactions were suspicious. For five years, the operation ran smoothly. Janusz and Victoria settled into their new home, cultivating the image of two wealthy financial professionals. Of their many clients, nobody suspected that they were not what they seemed. So kind of I knew how our, not our, bank clients and Russian clients and their counterparts in Europe have been acting. So during my work for the Credit Index Bank and FSB, of course, I learned all these tricks and I, I knew the way uh, people are talking, the kind of terminology they've been using, the way they are presenting themselves, the way they are joking, the way they are kind of, what type of clothes even they are wearing, some business shoes or some kind of casual stuff. So yeah, we applied it all. And no one around us in Portland knew who we are. It was completely in shadow till 2013. Yes, everything changed in 2013. We're back at the beginning, in that cafe in Portland. Christine, an FBI case officer, has just informed the Neumanns that their services are no longer required at the end of a concealed handgun. What went wrong? With an FBI, if we can say like in one sentence what happened, we can say the system failed. But it doesn't mean that people failed. So there are lots of, lots of the really brilliant, smart, well-educated, well-trained and talented people, and men and women inside the FBI. Unfortunately, just by doing their work as well, they have to fight the system, their own system, which is not perfect. And it's, it's a huge bureaucratic machine. To this day, Janos blames the convoluted bureaucracy of the FBI for the breakdown of their professional relationship. He wasn't able to go into detail, but he heavily implies that certain figures within the bureau refused to admit that they were not qualified to handle this case alone. During this time, agency and some other organizations offer us help and offer FBI help with the case because they know how to do things. And the operatives guys who've been working with us, they vouched for us, so like, yeah, let the other guys handle it because we don't know how to do it. It's not working for us. But on the management level, decision was made, no, we will keep trying on our own. So they just made decision, like, instead of just trying to fix it and make it right, let's just get rid of the problem. On the same day as their fateful meeting with Christine from the FBI, Janos reached out to his contacts at FBI headquarters to try and appeal the decision. But the Portland office refused to budge. Eventually, with a little help from some friends inside the US intelligence community and a crack team of attorneys, Janos and Victoria were allowed to remain in the USA, where they're now raising a young family. But for ex-spies, employment can be hard to come by. Thank you to the FBI, I do have lots of free time. And I was not able to find a normal employment because people think we, uh, especially after Trump's election, it became even more complicated. 
to find uh, full-time employment. So I spoke with the several uh, former uh, CIA guys who ended up in the same situation as I am, except they have pension, I don't. So no documents, no job, no security. All Janos had were his experiences. Today, he's turning them into graphic novels. His first, Red Atlantis, is available now from Aftershock Media. What we found out, it's a really interesting way to tell this story, especially if you don't want to say too much, but you want to make it more visual, as visual as possible. And uh, now it's a big challenge how we can bring some real money laundering cases into the graphic novel. I'm Vanessa Kirby. Join us next week for another encounter with true spies. We all have valuable spy skills, and our experts are here to help you discover yours. Get an authentic assessment of your spy skills, created by a former head of training at British Intelligence, for free now at spicegate.com. In the 1970s, John Todd burst onto the evangelical scene with a shocking tale. He claimed to be a former witch involved in a then unheard of secret organization called the Illuminati and urged Christians to prepare for a violent world takeover. First of all, the number one weapon in everybody's home should be a 12-gauge pump shotgun. Hear the amazing story of one of the originators of the modern-day conspiracy theory. From Magnificent Noise and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Cover Up, The Conspiracy Tapes.